Let's get straight into our business wrap for tonight. We're joined by Makwe Masilela, Chief Investment Officer at Makwe Fund Managers. Good evening to you, Makwe. How's the load shedding in your part of the world? Evening to you, time and to the listeners. Fortunately, we are not experiencing any, so we are lucky for now. Well, yes, you certainly are the lucky ones who are still in the light. Today, uh, Liseka Kanyaho gave a presentation uh, focusing on how to get the economy to recover post-COVID-19. And now one of the economic policies that has been under the spotlight is inflation targeting. And um, Governor is saying that that is pretty much here to stay. Yeah, you know, I think it's about time, Tani. You know, we know that we've been getting all these public opinions, even some political pressures on the South African Reserve Bank. And I think it's doing a good job by also giving their side and what they think should happen when it comes to this whole issue of the bank. But in my opinion, as you said, inflation targeting is got its own advantages because remember, Tommy, inflation is this monster that it means if it gets out of control, it means your money is starting to buy less. So it's very critical to make sure that our inflation is contained within a certain range. And so far we've been doing okay, all because of the likes of what is happening with all prices, meaning our transport costs, and to some extent the rent has been helping. But I don't think it will be a problem if, given the current situation, as much as inflation targeting is important, we don't have to abandon that. But there's nothing stopping our bank and other banks as well to have what one calls a dual mandate to make sure that, yes, even if you are considering and setting those interest rates, we know to some extent we do, do consider the economic growth, but what's wrong with having that as well as part of the mandate? And I agree with him when he says everything that comes for any reserve bank or central bank is the independence thereof, meaning they should be seen whenever that taking positions that those positions are independent. So I don't think it should be a question of abandoning, inflation, targeting, and adapting something else. But we can be able to run, you know, a dual mandate. And tell me, we are in new normal, meaning we are allowed to start rethinking some of the previous policies, some of the previous mandates. But to show, as we do that, especially when it comes to the reserve bank, we have to make sure that it continues to maintain its independence. And I think we have to give it to him as well to clarify this whole issue about quantitative easing because it seems to be on everyone's tongue because other countries are doing that. I think another thing that I think we should have emphasized is that, guys, the South African rent as is, unlike the likes of their euro, unlike the likes of their US dollar, is not part of any foreign reserve of any country. So meaning people are not accumulating the rent, unlike uh, the, the US dollar or the euro, to make sure that their foreign reserves look okay. So meaning our policies back home cannot be a replica of exactly what is happening with the European Central Bank or what is happening with the US Federal Reserve. And it's about time that we adopt policies that definitely suit our situation, policies that will help us as a country to get out of this economic hood that we are experiencing now. I'm going to ask us, Makwe, to go back to basics here and go into a definition of terms. When we talk of quantitative easing, what exactly are we talking about? You know, the government, for them to raise money, they sell bonds. Then they will say they issue bonds. 
And when we buy those bonds, they, they create a bond, it's a 20-year bond, meaning it's going to mature in 20 years' time with a coupon of 6% per, uh, 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 by annually, meaning that pay you 6% interest rate after every six months, and come year 20, you get your capital. So between now and year 20, you are just getting the interest rate with a coupon. So now the bank is participating by buying those uh, coupons, not from the issuer, which is the government, but from the secondary market. Meaning when the bank issues the or auction those bonds, banks participate and buy those bonds. And as they buy those bonds, basically, they are lending money to the government. So the Reserve Bank, to help with the liquidity so that it doesn't dry up, especially in economic stress, they also buy those bonds in the secondary market. So people have been saying, no, don't buy it in the secondary market. Why don't you buy directly from the treasury, directly from the government? So when we do that, basically it's quantitative easing, meaning you are lending the government money to be able to spend and do whatever they need to do to help the economy. And as you do that, now the reserve bank doesn't print money, so it will end up with a situation where they will be buying those bonds and they will end up guys not having money themselves. And what will happen to me, the reserve bank, they'll end up going to the main shareholder, which is the, the government, again, for the the, 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 the national treasury to try to bail them out. Because as you buy them, those goes into the money market, an interbank money market, and then they also affect your uh, financing costs. They go down, which is the repo rate. So what you have to do, the bank has to go back and borrow that money. So for us, it's not really a thing that will exactly work apart. We don't really have to do quantitative easing. We can think of something along those lines as long as it's going to help us. But basically, that's what it means by quantitative easing. Buying those bonds, lending money to the government so that they can be able to finance whatever. And it's happening indirectly now in the sense that the Reserve Bank does not buy those bonds directly from the government. That buying that into the secondary market instead of the primary market. Now, while we add it um, on the on on the topic of definitions, let's go back to inflation targeting because it's just so key um, as far as uh, economic policy is concerned. He did mention that high inflation is not good for the economy. He went to the extent of giving us a background on inf- on uh, inflation targeting. The fact that it's not didn't just come into advent. Um, in, in post-democratic South Africa. It was there even before apartheid. But talk to us about the technicalities of this and why in inflation targeting works and how. The Reserve Bank has got uh, mainly one tool, basically, which is interest rate, the monetary policy, when they set their repo rate. And now what they do, that's a, a repo rate, by the way, that's the rate that the central bank charges the commercial banks when they need money, then the central bank will add a 3.5% to that repo rate, and it makes it a prime rate. And that's what they charge me and you. So what they do, they then say, our inflation, which then increase in prices, we want it to be within 3 and 6%, which is our target. And now when inflation gets out of control, meaning with us currently, the Reserve Bank is happy to see inflation expectations, meaning inflation from now to six, nine months, if it's anchored around 4.5 or just below, which is the midpoint. So if the market starts getting out of control, then they will increase interest rates. And the basic thing, when you do that, you're basically discouraging 
their money supply or basically discouraging people to go out there and get more credit because then it's going to be costly because interest rates will be high. But when the economic conditions are not okay, to try to help them, you reduce interest rates, you make it easier for us to go and lend money because for any economy to grow, you need to spend money in the economy. And for us to spend money, other than having jobs, we also have to have access to credit. So you make the credit less. So that is the tool that they use to try to stimulate the economy. So as you have seen now, our interest rates are at a record low level, and they have also made sure that they uh, uh, relax some of the conditions for commercial banks so that it's easy for them to lend out money to consumers. And some of those restrictions that they see, things like they don't, when it comes to their capital adequacy requirements, they don't have to be that stringent. When it comes to their bad debt, the guys have to be more accommodating. So that's the main tool that they have as a central bank, taking interest rates, call them repo rates, up or down. So when they're down, basically, we should be able to go out to go and get that credit. But unfortunately, in this instance, the only thing that it does for us is that it takes your repayments, whether it's your mortgage or your car, your repayments, monthly repayments are less because interest rates are less. But it becomes very difficult for people to go and accumulate new credit because if consumer confidence is low, if you're not certain about your job, then you'll be very reluctant to go and try to get more credit. So for now, what we're trying to do most consumers is to try to pay off that particular debt because interest rates are favorable and obviously those who can afford to do that, they should definitely do that. And especially those that debt that attracts the high interest rate, the likes of your credit card, the likes of your unsecured loans, the likes of overdraft, then you use the opportunity to try to pay them off so that at least when things have to change, interest rates start going up, at least you are better off. Let's move on now to uh, to, to a presentation that govern, government made to labor and business today. Obviously, economic recovery being at the heart of that presentation. Infrastructure development, building, seems to be a huge part of government strategy. It is. And, you know, most governments try to do that. Whether it's the U.S., they will try to spend on infrastructure. Whether it's China, they will try to spend on infrastructure because infrastructure at the same time it makes your country or economy look better. It's going to help you to start doing business much easier. It's going to reduce the cost of doing business. So yes, back home here, we know that it has been one of these things that to try to boost our economy, to get it back to where it's supposed to go, we have to embark on infrastructure spend. But unfortunately, our track record has been bad so far. I mean, we have not seen something concrete happening. Only the last three or four weeks, when the government diverted some of the projects that immediately they will want to start working on. So that's the backbone of trying to help the economy. And the reason being, Tammy, in fact, spent, it helps you also because it's got a good multiplier effect, unlike spending money on consumption. So that money that you spend, say, on building the roads or bridges, other than creating jobs, it's also making life much easier. It's also making your country attractive to foreign investors. So it's a very good and decent way to try to boost the economy. The problem here, Tammy, is that we hope that this time around it's not going to continue to be just an expensive talk or a cheap talk, 
but definitely this time we hope that the government will implement. Remember now, we've got only one choice as a country to make sure that we come out of this trouble. And to come out of this trouble is to make sure that we implement the necessary structural reforms, and some of them is the lack of infrastructure spend. Some of them is to make sure that the auctioning of the spectrum that we've been talking about for years, it gets to be implemented. So definitely that will be able to help our economy. But the critical thing here is are we going to be able to implement? And if we implement the timing, we also have to consider that it has to be done at a certain speed because time is not on our side. What you've done here, Makwe, is you've actually highlighted a lot of supportive uh, industries and sectors. You've mentioned energy. Uh, you've mentioned the, the spectrum, uh, even as we're talking about infrastructure development. And, and in all of these various uh, circumstances, Intentions have been wonderful. But the question is, does government have the capacity to implement? I think capacity for us is, is not an issue, in my opinion. I mean, I think the issue here is the willingness, you know, because tell me, do we have the money to do that? Yes, we do have some of the money. Do we have the human resource to do that? Definitely we do. But we've been lacking the political will to be able to forge ahead with all those great plays that we've been talking about. So capacity in the sense of money, capacity in the sense of human resource, you know, skills, I think we do have them. We just have to get the lawmakers to make sure that it definitely happens. And also what's more important to me is that there is a huge opportunity cost if we allocate to money to spend on a project and we don't spend that money. So even if we can come out with a very clean audit or whatever, but we have caused the opportunity, I mean, the economy quite a lot. Because that money, if we don't spend it, it means we have not created the necessary jobs. If we could have created jobs, it means the government could have recouped some of the money by charging uh, uh, taxes to those companies that are doing the project and are making profit. And also, more importantly, those people who are employed, they could have paid you, pay as you earn. As, as we know, that the only source of government revenue is taxes, and the biggest or the significant part of those taxes comes from pay as you earn, and people can only pay that if they are working, and more importantly, if they've got the decent, stable jobs or well-paying jobs. I don't know about you, Makwe, but I am quite exhausted about hearing the phrase lack of political will, because yeah. ultimately what we have are great strategies that are sterling on paper. But due to this phrase, lack of political will, a lot is not being implemented, and therefore progress lags. The people of our country continue to suffer, and we don't quite reach the height and the potential that we have innately as a nation. So if I have to ask you for possible solutions on how to circumvent this quote-unquote lack of political will and actually reach the point of implementation, reach the point of actually seeing tangible products and results, progress and growth in our country. What type of solutions would you advocate for? I think, you know, as you are saying and as you are talking about it, you are starting to think you are the only one who's tired of hearing that. I think civil society, ordinary citizens are tired of that. And I think those people, remember, 
it should be the other way around. We are their bosses, we elected them, so it means we should start holding them to account. And accountability here is not having those boardroom or dinner table conversations, it's to take the real action to make sure that the government of the day have to account to us. Because as I said, those people are working for us, not the other way around. And we should shy away to get them to account. And they're very good and, and principled ways to get your government to account to you as citizens because it's costing everyone. Everybody is bleeding money. People don't have jobs, as you said. People are struggling. Lots of companies will be closing in the next four or five months after all this relief that we are seeing come to exhaustion. So we're going to still be facing real economic hardship, you know, in the next coming four or five months. So yes, for us to make sure that the guys don't just have good things on paper, but they get to be implemented. Let's hold the guys to account. A powerful one there. Makwe, Santam had been very hesitant in the past to pay out uh, COVID-19 pandemic-related uh, claims. But it looks like it's good news for some business owners who had been adversely affected by COVID-19. Yeah, it is. You know, as we know that there's still a legal uh, issue that's dealing with the courts to, to really make sure and finalize this. But in the meantime, for the guys to agree with the uh, authorities and regulators, they agree that let's have this for a form of relief. And I think sometimes they've set aside almost one billion and that doing claims paying anything from 25 million to next, I think 1.5 million, and that's more or less almost 70%, you know, of the two months uh, that you could have just uh, contributed of the value of the trade. So, so far, it might be enough for other businesses, but for other businesses, for sure, it won't be that enough. And also for other businesses, it might just be too little, too late, and others probably don't benefit from that because we all know and it's well documented when it comes to the hardship, you know, that has been experienced by restaurant owners, the industry, the whole income sectors and stuff like that, and also those retailers who are non-essential. So, yeah, we hope we will be able to save some of them. We don't think that they will save everyone else because it's been quite some time, you know, the guys have been asking for money. And I think some of the guys have already made the decision to close and some of them have also made a decision to start reducing stuff. I think we need to bear in mind I mean, that even when we go back to normal, I don't know when, when is that going to be, does not mean that things will just automatically start going up because other people won't be having jobs from other sectors. So whatever services that you've been offering, it means your customer base will have been reduced because other people have lost jobs in other sectors. I wonder what this means uh, for business insurability in the future. Obviously, as a business owner, you take out insurance for your business for eventualities um, such as this. But no one really could have predicted that there would be a COVID-19 pandemic that would put everybody under lockdown and businesses would basically be gridlocked and not be able to trade. Post-COVID-19, do you see insurance companies perhaps going back to the drawing board and redefining and refining uh, what it is that they choose to cover, how they cover, when they pay out, and how much they pay out? Yeah, I think they will. I mean, I think they've started. Because remember, you can do some actual calculations, but they won't cover everything. And there are things that are totally beyond our controls. So you try to make sure that you to mitigate the risk as much as you can. But unfortunately, you cannot do that 110%. So there will always be this, what we call the black swan, you know, 
that will happen now and then. And if you remember, when insurance companies were known for looking for reasons not to pay, and also there's also been an issue with insurance companies that they start have to start simplifying their policies so that all of us can understand them. If we ask ourselves today now, are the policy documents that you are signing, how many of them are in Venice? How many of them you get your advice or whoever to take you point by point to make sure that you understand all those clauses? I promise you, Tony, more than 50% of us don't even understand clearly those policy documents that we have signed. We just know high level that I've got an insurance for a car or for a house or for whatever, or a funeral cover or whatever it is, or a life cover. But most of us don't even today understand the integrity. And I'm saying all of us, regardless of the level of education or exposure or wealth, because we just go on the high level, because even the very same advice of themselves, some of them will even fail to explain every little clause. So my point here is that whole idea initiative to stay policy documents should be simplified. I think that has to happen. As much as insurance companies are going back to the drawing board, the drawing board to see what is it that they have to cover and not to cover, they should also have that on the agenda that let's simplify our policy documents as much as we can. Magwe, before I let you go, while everybody else is, is suffering and, and really um, you know feeling the pinch financially due to COVID-19, Property prices in Cape Town are just astronomical. The fact that a house has been listed for 150 million rand in Fresne in Cape Town. Are there people who are still fluid at this particular time and are able to afford those kind of homes? Yeah, you do still have people with money time. And hence, people have been saying this is a buyer's market, and especially buyers with cash or buyers who can get pre-approved loans because we've got sellers, some of them, that they'll be forced selling because one lady has been using that house as an investment, but some of his investment or businesses are not doing that well, then they have to look at me to raise more money, either to continue their lifestyle or to try to help out their businesses. So you get those kind of forced sales. And if you're a buyer and you've got money or you've got a pre-approved loan, then I think we are in a better position. But also maybe we have to have a discussion about what determines the value of a property to say it's 150 million. Is it because the guy next to you sold for a higher price and then they try to say what has been the last price around the area because one could have sold for different reasons or what is it that actually when one has to value the property that it is the right value. But yet, Cape Town as we have known it, even before COVID, it has been a heaven when it comes to the guys with the necessary money to get all those nice expensive houses. But as we're talking now, those who were at almost the point where they don't have money to be able to choose with the debt, then unfortunately they'll have to 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 to, to for sale. But unfortunately most of those houses, most of them are not bonded. But the guy might be experiencing difficulties in their business. Then unfortunately they have to liquidate some of their assets so that they can make sure that they survive. We are seeing also with big companies trying to raise money by issuing more shares, stuff like that. So some of the guys will also do that. But let me sell this so that I can at least try to boost my balance sheet so that I can sustain myself as this uncertainty COVID-19 continues. Well, I must say, Mark, the only way to really buy a 150 million rand home is cash. 
because having a property like that bonded is a true bondage in itself. <laughs> I wonder what the repayments would be every single month. My goodness, I can't bear to fathom that. Well, Marco, thank you so much for our business wrap on this Thursday evening. Great chatting to you. Have yourself a great evening. Uh, that's uh, Marco Masilela, the Chief Investment Officer at Marco Fund Managers. Uh, great chat about the markets and business in general. And look, this 150 million rand house is absolutely exquisite. It's um, It's got five bedrooms and four of those bedrooms are en suite. It has an open plan kitchen, a scullery, two large living areas, a dining room, a walk-in wine cellar. It uh, also has on the top floor a sauna, a steam room, a personal gym, and literally it has glass as windows throughout the house. An amazing view of the mountain and it, it really just looks like a, a dream. The staircase inside is a glass staircase that just cascades from the top level down and opens up to a, a beautiful, luxurious uh, pool that you can just plunge in, decorated in beautiful earth tones and hints of gold here and there. And from a distance, you can also see the ocean and just a mirage of the water in in the distance while you're having your bath. So you can just meditate on that for a while. It will only cost you 150 million rand. Small change.